are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. My family and I lived in Spokane prior to coming to Crossroads, and we had an amazing run in Spokane. One of my highlights was building a friendship with Dr. Jerry Sitzer. Dr. Sitzer taught theology for 32 years at Whitworth University, and he's one of the godliest men that I've ever met. But he's also a man who is acquainted with great grief and loss. In 1991, on a rural Idaho road, Jerry was driving with his wife, his mother, and his four children. When in an instant, a drunk driver crossed the center line and hit them head on. In an instant, his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter died. Three generations in one moment in time. Jerry then had to become a single father to his three children. And he went through a period of such severe grief and loss Most of us will never experience any type of suffering like that. But here's what we do know. We will all experience grief, loss, and suffering in this life. Many of us know what it's like to lose a loved one, to lose a job, to lose a marriage. Some of us even know what it's like to lose a church family. Today, many of us are hurting We're suffering, and Solomon has a word for us that can strengthen us and that can comfort our hearts. He's going to speak to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and 7, and he's going to give us three critical principles. They're going to help us to navigate the loss and the suffering in this life, and he's going to argue something shocking. God can make the bad good. In other words, the bad circumstances, the bad situations, the bad trials in our lives, they can actually be used by God for His good purposes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 14, we're going to see those three critical principles The first principle is found in Ecclesiastes 6, verses 10 through 12. What Solomon is going to argue is that we ultimately must recognize God's sovereignty. He's going to say God's sovereignty must be accepted, not debated. Solomon says because God is the sovereign creator of the universe, we shouldn't dispute with God. Look at verse 10. Solomon writes, whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Whatever exists that's already been named is Solomon saying, God named things in creation, day, night, earth, sky, and many others. He's the creator God, and we are the creatures. So Solomon is arguing, 
Why would you want to dispute or debate with one who is stronger than you? In other words, God is sovereign over creation. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who directs our paths. Why would you want to argue with someone like that? C.S. Lewis puts it so well in Mere Christianity. He says, why would you want to argue with the one who made arguing even possible in the first place? It's like cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. That's so good. Honestly, I find it a little concerning when well-meaning believers yell, vent, and curse at God. It's become rather in vogue. We want to be transparent and authentic in our faith. So we'll say things like, well, God has broad shoulders. God can take anything that I dish out. Technically, that's true, isn't it? I don't think anyone would dispute that. But I want to say this gently and compassionately. That may not be the most mature response. That may be how we feel. That may be what we're thinking. But that may not be what's best. Now, let me explain myself further. That doesn't mean that we can never ask any why questions. That does not mean that we shouldn't lament. I think we should express anguish to the Lord. All I would suggest is that we remember who we're talking to. He's a sovereign God. He's a gracious God. He has a purpose in everything that He does. We may not know it. We may not understand it. But we trust Him. That's what Solomon is arguing. Now, he's going to explain verse 10 in a fuller manner in verses 11 and 12. Solomon writes, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So I want you to see what Solomon does. He uses the word who twice in verse 12. He's saying, going back to verse 10, there's a person stronger than you are. The implied person is God. In verse 12, the twofold use of who is again pointing to God. Who can answer the questions of life? Who can provide meaning and purpose? One person, the God of the universe, the sovereign God. Solomon argues again, it's futile to utter many words to the Lord. Twice he uses the Hebrew term havel that we've talked about, fleeting, futile, vapor, mist. He says, don't talk yourself to death. Trust in a God who knows what's best for you and for His ultimate kingdom. James Weldon Johnson, an author who is deceased now, said it many years ago, your arms are too short to box with God. So why would you want to box or fight with one who is stronger than you who has never lost a match? 
That's futile, Solomon would say. And what he argues is, you can't answer the question, what's best for you? You don't even know, nor do I, what's best for us in this life. But then he goes even further. He says, you also don't know what the future holds. So if we can't answer you with the only one who does, Solomon is going to use those two rhetorical questions in verse 12. The first one, which is posing the issue of who can know what's best in this life, he's going to answer that in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7. And then ultimately, who can know the future, what's coming next under the sun? He answers that in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So he's going to give us answers, although we may not always like the answers that he gives. See, the truth is, the only way we can know what's best for us is to be wise gals and guys and study Scripture. The only way we can ultimately know the future is to trust the God of the future. Because here's the truth. If we did know the future, we would know all the suffering and the tragedies that were coming our way. And we would dread our lives. If we knew all the blessings that God intended to give us in the future, we wouldn't be able to enjoy our lives today. So it's a gift that we don't know the future, but we know a God who controls the future. Most of us have been to an amusement park where you have those car rides that our kids and kids in general love so much. They're on a track system. And the car goes where the track has designed it and intends for it to go. But the first time a child gets behind the wheel and is able to grab the steering wheel for the very first time, they think they can direct that car. But no, the track is directing that car wherever it goes. Many of us think that we're in control of our lives, that we're the ones steering. And God wants us to know that's actually not the case. It's not that He's the author of evil. He is not responsible for the sins that you and I commit. But He is so sovereign that He's able to direct us on a track to reach our ultimate destination. So we trust in that sovereign God. Now you may be saying, well, what about all the answers to my questions that I'm not getting right now and that you're saying I probably won't even get tomorrow? You shelter in the sovereignty. You say, Lord, you're my rock, you're my fortress. I'm going to find shelter. I'm going to find protection in your sovereignty. God can make the bad good. And that simple sentence may be one of the few things that will get us through this life. In chapter 7, we find a second critical principle in verses 1 through 4. Solomon's going to write that adversity stimulates an eternal perspective. So the hardships of life the loss and the suffering of this life, it helps us to be riveted on an eternal perspective, to have heaven in mind, to have things that ultimately matter 
beyond this life on the forefront of our mind. Notice how he begins in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, a good name is better than a good ointment. Now, before we even explain this verse, we need to understand that verses 1 through 14 are Proverbs. They're universal truths that are generally true. And we need to understand how Solomon is arguing these Proverbs. We take them at face value, but we understand that there's not always a point-to-point correlation in all of it. What Solomon is doing is he's using comparative Proverbs. And the key to understand is 11 times, count those, 11 times in 14 verses, Solomon uses the Hebrew word translated good or better. Hence the title of this sermon, Bad is Better. The big idea, God can make the bad good. It's playing off of this very term that Solomon uses again and again and again. So when we look at the first proverb, he's talking about ointment. And we're thinking, ointment? What in the world is that? Ointment in the ancient Near East in Solomon's day was olive oil mixed with spices. It was designed to cover body odor in a world with no AC. On top of that, it was used, obviously, for purposes even when you weren't sweating and smelling. It was cosmetic. It was like a perfume or a cologne. It was like the Chanel 5 or the Ralph Lauren. It was meant to help us smell sweet. But it was also used in burial. Wealthy people used these forms of ointment. It was helpful in the ancient Near East. But Solomon is saying, a good reputation is so much greater than wealth and ointment and what we would call perfume and cologne. When we think about it, cologne and perfume, they're fleeting. They're futile. You put it on one moment, you have to reapply it nearly the next. A good reputation, that lasts forever. What's your reputation? What's your name? How important is it to you? I grew up watching Kyle Rote Jr. play professional soccer. Kyle Rote Jr.'s father, Kyle Rote Sr., played in the NFL with the New York Giants for 10 years. He was the captain. Kyle Rote Sr. passed away many years ago, and when Jr. was being interviewed, he said, you know, my dad's received a lot of accolades. There's a lot of amazing things that have been said about my dad, but here's the most impressive to me. Fourteen of my dad's former teammates named their firstborn son Kyle. They did that because my dad was a man of character, he was a man of integrity, and they wanted his name for their son. I love the name Kyle because of Kyle Evans. And Kyle Evans is that kind of man as well, a man of character, integrity, and godliness. 
What's your name? What do you want your reputation to be? What I challenge you to do this afternoon is write your eulogy. Go home this afternoon and take a few moments to write out your eulogy. What you want shared about you at your memorial service. Is that true of you right now? If it's not true of you right now, ask what is necessary for it to be true of you and then walk it back. Start today living your life the way you would want it to be remembered at your celebration of life service. And also, don't make your pastor lie. (laughs) I mean, live a life that's godly so that you don't tempt any of our pastors to have to exaggerate about your life. Your name and your reputation matter. They don't just matter in this life, they matter for all of eternity. Solomon continues in verse 1 in the second half, and he's going to say that death can be good. I know that's a crazy thought, but listen to these words. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Wow. I mean, we go back and we think, no, birth is a wonderful thing. Birth should be celebrated. Solomon is saying, well, yes, birth refers to the potential of your life, but potential that's actually not realized. If you focus on a good reputation, and if you walk as a follower of Christ at your death, that's your shining moment. That's when you're able to preach your greatest sermon. A coffin preaches a whole lot better than a cot. Are you with me? When we pass, if we finish well, that's better than even starting out. Now Solomon's going to continue the death theme. Watch out for verse 2. He's going to say that funerals can be good. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Solomon says you can go to a funeral or you can go to a party. We will typically choose the party. Solomon is saying, no, choose the funeral. Why? Because we're all going to die. Now, I know what you're saying. Listen, Keith, I'm jogging. I just had liposuction done. I'm eating my veggies. I need to tell you, I've checked the statistics on death. They're 100%. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And Solomon is saying, reflect on that fact. Death is like a detox clinic. It sobers us up. It's like a commanding officer who ultimately stands us up, forces us to salute, and to march out our orders in this life. Death speaks volumes. And recognizing our end and living accordingly can change our lives. And it can change our eternity. It probably won't surprise you to know that I like doing funerals much more than doing weddings. Some of you are saying, that is so morbid. And you're a morbid person, Keith. Well, you're probably right. But as a preacher, I like to be listened to. And I know this, at weddings, no one's listening to me. 
They're not even thinking about what I'm saying. Not even the bride and the groom. I mean, they're thinking about the honeymoon. I mean, no one is paying attention. But at a memorial service, everyone's listening. And when I preach at a memorial service, sometimes people are leaning forward. They're on the edge of their seat because they're thinking about death and what might happen if they were to die. I have visited a number of churches in New England, and New England is known for beautiful churches. 250 years ago, a number of churches were built in New England, and the churches were not built with stained glass windows. They were built with clear windows. The reason was simple. Many of these churches had a cemetery on the church property. And so the goal was that the pastor would always be able to see the gravestones, knowing that every person he was preaching to was eventually going to die and then to face judgment. Everyone in the church was aware of the cemetery as well. And 250 years ago, many churches in our nation, they were sold out to sin, judgment, and hell as eventual realities that would require penalty. And that's what gave a sense of urgency. That's what gave a burden to people. And I fear that in our day and age, since we don't like to talk about those types of things, we're losing sight of building disciples who bring Jesus to our world with a sense of urgency, with a sense of passion. My hope and prayer is that Crossroads truly does not leave its moorings of biblical teaching and united worship and strategic outreach, but that we sell out to these values and the rest of them for God's honor and glory and for our good and the good of other people. Solomon now regroups and he hits sorrow in a generic way. He's going to say that sorrow can be good in verses 3 and 4. He says, sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. So he reverts back once again to this idea of partying, the house of pleasure. There's lots of laughter. There's lots of distraction. And Solomon is saying, you can get lost in all of that. And he's saying, I certainly did. Remember? Wine, women, wealth, work, wisdom, all the W's. Solomon is saying, I was a wise guy, but I got distracted. And I tried to cover some of my pain. Often, we'll say that laughter is the best medicine, and it is in many respects, and we need laughter. But because we're not willing to lament and to express sorrow and anguish because we have to put on our happy face, particularly with other believers, we're losing out on the fact that sorrow can actually be good and beneficial for us. Solomon would say, 
God can make the bad good. And He uses death. He uses funerals. He uses sorrow for His good purposes. So we've seen that adversity ultimately brings about an eternal perspective. Now we're going to see a third and final critical principle. Solomon is going to say that adversity cultivates godly character in verses 5 through 14. Solomon is going to go through a number of Proverbs, just like he has in verses 1 through 4. And some of them are going to be all over the place, or so it's going to seem. But they're all tying together the theme that what we may perceive as bad can actually be good from God's perspective. Look at verses 5 and 6. Solomon is going to talk about rebuke. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. In Solomon's day, if you wanted a quick fire, if you wanted a hot fire, you would take thorn bushes and you would throw them in and they would crackle and it would heat up quick and then expire. Solomon is saying that's how partying and laughter can be. That's how sometimes excessive encouragement and flattery can be. We all want to hear what people appreciate about us. We all want to be built up. And that's needed almost every day. But what many of us don't want is someone to rebuke us. We don't want the constructive criticism that Scripture challenges us to give. We don't want to be humble and teachable when someone goes eye to eye, nose to nose with us, and they call us out. Even when it's done in a loving fashion, very few of us can receive it well. But yet if we go back over our lives from when we were children all the way up through the present, many of us would say one of the greatest gifts we've been given is a rebuke, some constructive criticism. So let me ask you, can you receive a rebuke from a coworker, from your boss, from your neighbor, from a classmate, from a roommate? Can you receive a rebuke? Let's go even further. Can you receive the most difficult of rebukes from those who love you most? Your spouse, your children, your parents, your church leadership? I mean, some of you are getting real, real nervous right now. I'm watching you. We don't like that. I mean, we're going to fight fire with fire. We're going to be defensive. We're going to pour out our wrath if someone comes after us, no matter how gentle they are. But Solomon is saying, often a rebuke is better than flattery or good times had by all. God can make the bad, good. I challenge you today, when someone has the courage to rebuke you, especially when it's done humbly and lovingly, receive it. Don't make them regret having brought anything to you. A rebuke can change your life. Even if there's only a grain of truth in it, there's probably something that we can all get out of a healthy rebuke. 
In verse 7 through 10, Solomon is going to argue some unusual points. In verse 7, he's going to talk about oppression and injustice. And he's going to say even believers and wise people can fall prey to oppression and injustice. Then he's going to bring it all the way down in verse 10 to nostalgia and say some of us love reflecting on the glory days, thinking that the glory days are better than the present days or perhaps the future days. And then what he does is right in the middle in verses 8 and 9, he says we have a tendency to be angry and impatient. This is a beautiful construction that Solomon is walking us through. So listen to these verses. For oppression makes a wise man mad or impatient, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it better the former days? Why, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? So Solomon says, our tendency is ultimately to be caught up in money, at times even in oppression and injustice, and then to think later that the days that we're living in are nothing compared to the days of the past. Solomon is saying, instead of criticizing governing officials, employers, and fallen pastors, recognize that any of us are susceptible to injustice, to oppression, and to sin. Then he says we need to be about recognizing that the days we're living in are the days that God has given us to live in. Instead of saying, I don't want to be raising children in this day and age. I don't want to be living in King County in this day and age. I want to go back to the former days when things were wonderful. What we're demonstrating is we don't have a great command of history. We don't realize how bad things were years ago. And we're not demonstrating a trust in the sovereignty of God that He has placed us in this particular context and culture for such a time as this. And that an expression of trust in God's sovereignty is celebrating today and knowing that God will see us through today. No matter how bad it appears, God can make the bad good. So in verses 11 and 12, he's going to say that wisdom is good. And we can all see that, but I want you to see how he explains himself. He writes, wisdom along with an inheritance is good, and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Solomon says it can be a blessing to have money. It can really be a blessing to have an inheritance. Because when you lose your job, when your expenses increase, when there's a recession, if you have money, if you have an inheritance, it's a form of protection. But he says a greater form of protection is wisdom. In the Old Testament, wisdom was simply skill for living, knowing how to relate God's truth 
to the way that you and I live. The truth is, even wisdom apart from God falls short. And there's a hint of that, especially with money, but also with wisdom. Because this word that's translated protection is translated shadow in chapter 6, verse 12. And the hint is, our knowledge, our wisdom is fleeting. Ultimately, apart from God, it's futile. It's like a shadow. And yet, God in His grace does provide protection, even through money and even through wisdom. We come to the climax now, the apex of this passage in verses 13 and 14. And what Solomon does is he tells us we need to consider. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Twice, Solomon commands us to consider. He wants us to meditate, to ruminate on what God does, even if we don't understand how God does it. See, we want our lives to be like a downhill slide. We want things to go especially well for us, but instead it can be uphill And God puts bends on the path to heaven. And sometimes it can be crooked. It's not point A to point Z. It's like a zigzag. And that's hard. If we think about your circumstances, everything from your car breaking down to you potentially losing your home to perhaps not being able to have children, when we think about the crooked nature of our circumstances when it comes to physical ailments, the chronic pain of migraines, back pain, the challenges of cancer, when we think of loss of relationships, spouse, a child, a grandchild, a friend, a parent, We think of all the bends in the path. And Solomon is saying, that's what God does. And we can't fully understand why he does what he does. But we shelter ourselves in his sovereignty. We realize that in the midst of all the seemingly bad things that happen to us in this life, God is working about his eternal purposes. I always think of Romans 8, what most Christians consider the greatest chapter in the Bible. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul says that we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, that God ultimately has taken suffering and He has used it to allow us to become who He wants us to be, and then He secures us in the midst of the most painful suffering in this life and says no one and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 demonstrates we're not saved and matured despite suffering, but because of suffering. 
in the midst of suffering, what grows us the most? Two emphases in this passage. Number one, suffering. Number two, patience. That's what grows us the most. And those are the two things we want the least. We will be conquerors. We will be victorious. And it will come through our suffering. Jerry Sitzer and I have had a number of occasions where we've been able to talk about the suffering of his life. And he's written many books that perhaps you've read, I've certainly read. His most well-known book is A Grace Disguised, where he tells the story of losing three generations of his family. The thing that's so shocking about Dr. Sitzer is he says that the suffering in his life has proven to be redemptive. That's the term he uses. And then he goes even further in a grace disguise, in conversations that I've had with him, in his teaching and preaching. He says, I wish that every person could experience what I have without the acute suffering. Now, of course, he understands that you can't experience all that he has and grow to that degree without the suffering but he's compassionate and tender-hearted. He doesn't want anyone to go through what he has, but it's what's made him the godly man that he is. And God has redeemed it all. And now not only Jerry, but his second wife, Pat, and his children and his grandchildren, and millions of people throughout the world have been impacted by his life story, A Grace Disguise. God can take the bad and make it good. And that has to be our prayer today, no matter how difficult it is. Let's find shelter in a sovereign God. Let's ask Him to comfort us and to strengthen us right now. Father, thank You that You do bring hard words to us. Hard words bring about strong disciples. And Lord, our heart is that we would understand better the role of loss, tragedy, and even death. That we would be able to have an eternal perspective, that it would cultivate within us godly character, and that we would be people who are soft and tender toward your word and toward others. Father, may we be reminded that your son, the Lord Jesus, was acquainted with grief and sorrow, and that he's called the suffering servant. And he took all of our sin he took it to the cross and he died for us. And then he demonstrated he was God by rising from the dead to give us the victory that we will be celebrating this next week. Lord Jesus, would you help us to recognize you as the suffering servant that you have been through more than we could ever be through in a lifetime, that you have endured more than anyone and we trust you and your sovereignty in whatever you bring into our lives, no matter how difficult it is. We say that as individuals, as families, and as a church body. If you've never trusted in Christ and you're hurting today, and you feel like you've been shattered, the only way you can find meaning and purpose in this life is through Jesus Christ. He wants you to bring your grief, your loss, 
your tragedy to Him. He wants you to acknowledge your sin. And He wants to give you a relationship with Himself. Would you trust in Him today? Would you become more than a conqueror because of what Jesus has done? Father, we pray for grace for each one of us to walk through this life of sorrows. Help us to fear no evil. Help us to trust in you, the one true God. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your protection over us. We worship you, Lord. We celebrate you. And we thank you for what Jesus has done. We pray this in his great name. Amen.